Welcome to the Grattan Institute podcast channel. This is a recording of one of Grattan's public events. Okay, good evening. Um, welcome to this public policy event uh, hosted by the Grattan Institute. My name is Tony Wood, I'm the Energy Program Director, um, and I'll be moderating this evening's discussion. Firstly, I would like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Aurora Nation, who are the traditional custodians of this place, which we now call Sydney, and pay my respects to their elders past, present and emerging. The, um, the issue we're discussing tonight is hydrogen. And about 23 years ago, um, an organisation called Borel invited me to be part of the gas industry in Queensland. And one of my first jobs was to get the hydrogen out of the gas network in Brisbane. Because at that time, the company was, the gas company, which was owned by Borel, was, had never converted to natural gas. What they were doing, um, because they didn't want to spend the money, I suppose, historically, but had now committed to do this, was basically to get, to, they were degrading natural gas and making towns gas out of natural gas. And the challenge was to go the other way and take the hydrogen mono carbon monoxide mixture out of the pipes and go to natural gas. And that meant we had to go in to every town, every house, every business, every stovetop and change the burners. And that was a fascinating experience for two reasons. One was that there were people who seriously believed we were going to do nasty things to them and stood at the front gate and stopped our people coming onto the site. Um, and, and secondly, we actually made some money in a few places because because to do this, you had to cut the gas off for every street. That meant some people complained that their gas had been turned off, and we found people we never knew about were connected to the gas network. So we had some new customers. Uh, didn't pay for all of the conversion, but I should say. So the interesting issue, and we'll be discussing some of this tonight, is back to the future. Are we going to go back to putting hydrogen in our gas pipelines? And I will come to that as the evening progresses. For many people in the, in the, in the energy industry, Hydrogen is almost one of the things of the day. There's a lot of discussion about hydrogen, and you'll get tonight a small glimpse of some of it because there is a heap going on, and a particular focus, I think, on some of the which related to the direct impacts it's likely to have um, for those of us who, who, um, are like, who consume energy and may already be connected using gas and may be interested in what happens in relation to gas and hydrogen. In, the, in, the, in that context, but there's also a broader context of the way hydrogen might play out. So tonight we have three speakers. Um, those of you who registered will have seen the names of those speakers. You'll know their detailed background, so I won't read that again. Um, but Alison Reeve is the head of, or the leader of the task force for Australia's national hydrogen strategy. Um, yep. Yeah. Oh, sorry. I think you um, is and. Um, some of you may also know that uh, Alan Finkel, the chief scientist, has been given the job of developing a national hydrogen strategy to report back to the Council of Australian Government's Energy Council by the end of this year. And that is a significant amount of work because, the, uh, as you'll see from some of from Alison's presentation, there is a lot of stuff to be done and a lot going on. More specifically in relation to some of the issues which I think are quite interesting, and there are a whole range of things that I'm sure you'll find interesting, um, Peter Harkis, who's the General Manager for Asset Management for Gemini Gas Networks um, here in Sydney, and Craig Memory, who's very strong, has a very strong background in the consumer side 
of the equation in a number of organisations, and in particular, uh, took a deep dive into the issue of into the issue of what are the fundamental economics of gas and electricity in our homes and businesses. And so he'll bring a different perspective on that. So um, Alison will talk for about 15 minutes, Peter and Craig for about 10 minutes each. We'll have a little bit of time to have a conversation between the four of us, just to get things going while you think about your questions uh, for, the, for the panel. Um, I have some pre-submitted pre, uh, questions from some of you, and, uh, and then we'll have a Q&A for about 25 minutes or so. Our objective, of course, is to finish as close as we can to 7.15, so you can get on and do what you need to do for the rest of the evening. So, without any further formalities, can I ask Alison, please, to take over? Thank you very much, Tony, and good evening, everybody. Um, I'm going to apologise slightly in advance for my voice because I have a cold coming on, so I'm going to be a little bit husky. Um, <laughs> I'm going to talk about three things today. Um, first of all, a little bit about why hydrogen's important and, and exciting. And secondly, why this is an opportunity for Australia. And then I'm going to spend a bit of time addressing Tony's question, is it coming to a stovetop near you? So... Let's start with why hydrogen. Hydrogen's a clean fuel and it's got an incredibly high energy content. It's a really, really tiny little molecule. But when you burn it, you don't get any emissions. You just get water and you get an insane amount of energy out of it. Now, people have sort of understood this property and have been talking about using hydrogen as a fuel since the 19th century. So if you're a fan of Jules Verne, um, Jules Verne had a vision of using it to replace coal in steam trains and steamships. Um, they've, and there have been sort of successive waves of, of interest in using hydrogen as a fuel ever since. So um, in the 1930s, people were interested in, in running cars on it during the Second World War. In Belgium, they ran buses on it. In the 1970s, people talked about making cars that ran on water instead of oil during the oil crisis. Um, but I think the thing that we've now realised is that the story is actually a little bit bigger than locomotives and paddle steamers and, and water-powered cars. Um Hydrogen is actually really can play a really powerful role across the whole energy sector. So it's a really useful tool for integrating large amounts of renewable energy into your energy system because it allows you to move energy between seasons, between countries, um, and between systems. It allows you to turn it into electrical energy, into energy that you can burn, and then turn that back again. Um, it can also sort of play some roles in other sectors of the economy as well. So it's a really useful way to think about decarbonising industrial energy use. So about in Australia, around 30% of our um, emissions come from the electricity sector. But the next two biggest sectors are transport and stationary energy use. And hydrogen is a technology that can play a role in both of those sectors, which are a little bit harder to decarbonise than the electricity sector is. The other thing is that hydrogen is actually really important feedstock for industrial processes. So we use a lot of hydrogen in the economy already in the refining sector um, to make fertilisers like um, ammonia and so on to make plastics. Um, so in, if you're thinking about, about how to decarbonise those sectors as well, making having clean hydrogen to do that is actually really useful. Now, there's a lot of countries who've, who've kind of cottoned onto this. They, you know around the world, 
they've set ambitious targets that they need to get to as part of their signing up to the Paris Climate Change Agreement. Um, and a lot of different countries are starting to look at a lot of those different uses and how can they use hydrogen as part of the mix of things that they're going to do. So um, in the UK, for example, they're talking about using it to replace natural gas for heating. Um, they have commissioned a fleet of hydrogen buses. They have hydrogen trains. Germany, being a big auto manufacturer, sees this as something that's about cars. Um, Austria, for example, is using steel, um, hydrogen in steel production instead of using coal or, or, um, or gas in, in those processes. Um, the US, which people tend to think of as being a bit of a laggard in the climate change um, space, has actually, um, and I guess a little surprisingly, switched over in enormous numbers of forklifts in their materials handling businesses. Um, so big companies like... Um, UPS, like Amazon and, and so on, are using hydrogen to run forklifts because it's actually a lot better than electrification. Um, China is starting to get into the game. They're looking at as hydrogen as a way of storing energy and for buses um, and so on. Now, the two big important ones, though, are right here in our region. So Japan has announced targets that in, by 2030, it wants to have a gigawatt of electricity coming from hydrogen. It wants to have 5.3 million heat and power systems using hydrogen, 800,000 fuel cell cars and 1,200 fuel cell buses by 2030. And Korea, right next door, wants to have 15 gigawatts of power generation and 250,000 fuel cell vehicles by 2040. So two of our biggest trading partners in energy, people that we have traditionally sold coal and gas to, are now saying, hey, we want to use something different for our energy. And this is why this is a big opportunity for Australia. So this is a map of the daily solar irradiance that falls on Australia. So in total, we get around 58 million petajoules of sunshine a year, and that's about nine and a half thousand times more than the total amount of energy that we use. Um, and other people want our energy, right? We've been exporting energy pe to people since the 1970s. Um, but what is starting to happen is because people have, uh, you know, our traditional energy customers have committed to decarbonising their economies. They're starting to look for sources of energy that are clean. And a lot of them can't make their own energy. So, you know, in this, when we sort of talk about moving to clean energy in this country, we just tend to, t to talk about, okay, we're going to have more renewable energy because we can make our own energy, right? We've got all that solar and wind and hydro. But if you look at Japan and Korea, they're not in the same situation. They're a much further away from the equator, so they don't have the sun, but they're not far enough to get the sort of the, the big wind resources like, like we have. They're also really tiny and they have a lot of people. Um, so those are shown there at the same scale. And I've also put up there what their population density is. So there's a hundred times more people in Japan per kilometer squared than there is here. And so for that reason, they are just not in a situation to produce their own energy. They're already energy importers. So Japan, for example, imports 94% of its energy. And even if they decarbonize, they're going to stay importers of energy because they simply do not have a way to make it themselves. So 
This is why hydrogen is an opportunity for us. It allows us to turn this renewable resource that we have into a form of energy that we can move around on a ship and sell it to our traditional energy customers. And then if you add in the other um, energy resources that we have that we can use to make hydrogen, so for example, you can use natural gas if you combine it with carbon capture and storage, and you can use coal if you combine it with carbon capture and storage. Once you add all of those in, this story starts to look really, really big indeed and like a very big opportunity for us. So last year, the um, energy ministers, after a... Um, a briefing from the chief scientist, Alan Finkel, agreed that actually, yes, this, this was a good opportunity. And they asked um, a, a bunch of public servants, me included, and Alan to go away and come up with a national strategy for hydrogen. So the vision that they set us was um, this that's up here. They want an, an industry that's clean and innovative and competitive, and that is a major global player by 2030. And the, the really nice thing was that this was a unanimous decision. So Every state and territory were behind it and it didn't matter if they were Labor or Liberal or LNP or Federal or state and territory, they all agreed and they all said, yes, this is a thing that we want. Um, those of you who've, who are energy nerds and spend a lot of time around energy policy would perhaps know that that doesn't always happen. Um, and the other thing that, that ministers sort of did as well was they made a joint statement where they committed that they wanted to keep working together on this. Now, hopefully we can hold them to that into the future. Um, but it was a really positive sign that they saw this as an opportunity that couldn't be seized unless governments and industry worked together. So... Ministers have given us a year to come up with this, and this is sort of a list of all of the things that they've asked us to look at. So we have to think about things like safety and environmental impacts, like financing, for um, what the community's expectations are around developing this industry, research and development. We have to look at governance. And then they also looked at these five end-use cases for hydrogen they wanted us to examine. So one of those was exports, which is building on that big potential that I just talked about. Um, one was hydrogen for transport. One was thinking about hydrogen, how hydrogen interacts with the electricity system. Um, and one was about how industry could use hydrogen. So we have a lot of um, industry in Australia that uses hydrogen at the moment, particularly fertilizer and explosives production and refineries. Um, and then they asked us to look at whether hydrogen could substitute for natural gas. So either as 100% hydrogen in the gas network or as a blend of hydrogen and natural gas delivered through the, the gas network that we've got now. Which brings us to tonight's topic. Is it coming soon to a stovetop near you? Now, we're still going through the process of analysis and evidence gathering to decide what we recommend to ministers. Um, we put out a series of issues papers yesterday for people who are interested. Um, but what I'm kind of what we're considering right now is sort of three big questions. One is, is it technically possible? Second one is, are users going to accept it? So would consumers actually be happy if we put hydrogen into the network? Um, and then the third one is, do the economics stack up? So in terms of the technical possibility, now I'm not a gas network expert, and I think Peter's probably going to have a lot more to say about this. Um, and he's going to, you know, he's going to make a sign if I say anything, you know, stupid. Um, but look, to break it down, there's four parts of the gas network that we need to consider when we're looking at what's technically possible. 
So the first one is the transmission network. This is the big pipes that take the gas from gas fields to um, to distribution points. And the pipes here are made from high tensile steel. And one of the things that we know from material science is that hydrogen can make steel pipes brittle and prone to failure. Um, this is because hydrogen molecules are really, really tiny. And they're so tiny, they can actually work their way into the steel between the carbon and the iron atoms and get and reduce the strength of the pipe. So one thing um, that we've already ruled out is putting hydrogen in the transmission networks because our transmission networks are, are made from steel and it wouldn't be safe or, or economic to do so. The second part is the distribution network. So this, these are the gas mains that run down your street. Uh, um, and here the story I think is a bit more positive. So gas network owners in Australia have been replacing the old cast iron gas mains um, progressively with high density polyethylene pipes because these are easier to maintain. Um, and the great thing about those pipes is that hydrogen can't work its way into them in the way that it can in cast iron and steel. So they're actually really good for moving hydrogen around. Now, I will stress there's kind of different levels of replacement that have gone on across different gas networks. Um, where I live in Canberra, we built our network in the 80s and it was built in HDPE in the first place, so we're okay. But there's um, there are other areas of the country where they've got a much older network and that's sort of been progressively replaced and so on. So as far as we know, we're pretty sure that the distribution networks are okay. The third thing we need to consider is the piping inside buildings. So this is the pipe that goes from your gas meter to your gas stove or to your gas water heater. And this is a really mixed story because it varies a lot from building to building. Um, if you think about Australia's housing stock, right, we have houses that were built in the middle of the Victorian era and we have houses that were built last week. And materials have changed, you know, so there were houses that were built around the time when the reason we ran gas into houses was for lighting. Um, because, you know, when AGL was still the Australian gas light company, because what it did was provided you with lighting. Um, and we also have houses where it's coming in for heating and cooking and, and water heaters and so on that we, where we use it now. Now, the advice that we've been given in the task force from various stakeholders is that because all of those pipes run at very low pressure, there shouldn't be safety issues around them. Um, but we feel that we, it's still, there haven't been, I think, sufficient and um, sort of, I guess, thorough and, re you know, regular checks made to give us the assurance that these are 100% ready. Now, there are people who are proposing to do this work. So, I, you know, it's, it's a problem that can be solved quite easily. Um, but for the moment, that's something where, as policymakers, we feel that we need a little bit more information before we can give um, a go ahead on that. And then the last part of the chain is the appliances. So, all domestic appliances in Australia are tested before sale for suitability to take up to 13% hydrogen blended with natural gas. And the reason they do that is because the natural gas that comes out um, of the distribution system is not always of a consistent quality in every, every part of Australia. So they're tested with something in it that is a, you know, a contaminant, basically, which is the hydrogen, to make sure that it will work in different parts of the country. And now, that 13% level has a bit of a safety margin in it. So that's not saying you can put 13% hydrogen in all the time. It's saying you can put a small amount of hydrogen in and you'll be okay. Um, there's been work done by some of the cooperative research centres that show that higher blending rates are possible with some domestic appliances. We also know there's a very small amount of appliances who, um, which 
can't take it at all. And those are mostly the portable gas heaters that some people use when they live in areas where there's no gas network and they want to have gas heating. So I don't know if you've seen them, but they're kind of like a a box like that and you put a gas cylinder into them and you turn it on and it heats your house. Um, so, you know, we're, we're, we're pretty sure on the domestic side that we're okay with putting hydrogen in. Industrial appliances are a bit of a different matter because those tend to be quite bespoke um, and they're all different and they're all individually tested and certified. So they sort of, you know, because they're not kind of standard things like cooktops are, that's probably something that need, you need to look at um, in a little bit more detail to get more assurance. And there's already um, a number of projects um, underway across Australia, of which Peter's project is one, who are doing trials and work around how the, how hydrogen actually behaves when you put it into a network. So there's a lot of information that's going to be coming forward very soon that allows us to um, get better answers to some of these uncertainties. Okay, I'm going to race through. Um, uh, so the other thing I asked was, are consumers going to accept it? And there's been a little bit of work done in focus groups to test attitudes and expectations. And I've put some quotes up there for some work that um, University of Queensland researchers did, which you can find on the Australian Renewable Energy Agency website if you're interested. What this research mostly showed was that consumers generally have a neutral response to hydrogen, but they also have pretty low knowledge. The most frequently cited concerns they have around safety, cost and environmental impacts. And the vast majority of them believe that governments would put in place adequate safety precautions to keep the risks under control and would act in their overall best interests. So that's kind of a message for me. Um, I'll just quickly put this chart up as well. And this just shows you um, the things that people, you know, you can see the overwhelming um, concern around safety up there and also health. One of the things that was interesting was that people said that they wanted choice about whether it goes into their network or not. Now, the thing is that it's actually not possible to deliver choice on that. So that actually lifts the bar on things like safety and economic costs and so on um, that, you know, you, you actually would need to do a lot more convincing before you can actually jump into blending. The final question I was going to ask was, do the economics stack up? This is a very hard question. If you've spent any time around economic modelling, you know the answer is it depends. Um, I have had seen some sources that have said, you know, you can put a blend of 10% without any impact on gas prices at all. And I've seen other estimates that are less optimistic. Um, and what's kind of clear is that we don't have good data on this yet because one of the things of, you know, not having huge amounts of hydrogen used in the country outside the industrial sector is we don't have huge amounts of data about what it costs. It's not like the electricity market where we have years and years worth of data that we can draw on around how things cost. And again, um, what is really nice, I think, is that we're doing projects at, um, and trials and that sort of thing that will start to push things down the cost curve and will start to give us a little bit more data as well before we can make that, that, um, that question. I think one thing that will be important is that it, if we build an export industry, that will help with the cost because it will have to, if you are going to make enough hydrogen to put on a ship that you drive from here to Japan, you have to go really big. And what that does is that will push the cost down for any that you decide to keep here and, and use domestically. So just quickly to summarise, um, I think there's a cautious yes on at least putting a blend of hydrogen into the gas network. 
I think that users will accept it as long as it's appropriately regulated, as long as it's good for the environment and as long as we can minimise cost impacts. So, you know, it's not just a yes at any cost, it's we really need to make sure that we're not hurting people's hip pocket um, and that we're keeping them safe. We don't know if the economics will stack up, but I'm actually a bit optimistic about that because technology has a habit of surprising us. Um, anyone who was around the solar industry in the early 2000s will remember all the people who said solar is never going to be competitive. Um, and now it's cheaper than coal. Look at that. Um, so we know that you know new technologies will go through phases of development in order to come commercial. Hydrogen is not in the commercial phase yet. It's still in the startup phase. Right now, the projects are small and they're not cheap, but the way that you get things bigger and cheaper is to keep doing projects and do them bigger and cheaper every time. And that's how you drive costs down. So this means that hydrogen might arrive at a stovetop near you. It might get there a bit sooner than you think, but I don't think it's going to be tomorrow. Um, so I'll stop there. Um, if you're interested in finding out what we're up to with the national strategy, that's our website. Um, you can sign up for our updates and that sort of stuff there. I will hand over to Peter to talk about the Jimena project. Thank you, um, and um, good evening tonight. So, I mean, my first question is: um, is, is hydrogen the new black? I can see this; it's very obviously very exciting to be here with with a full thing. But when you actually look at every day, another a report comes out and. This is probably just the last two weeks' worth of reports that have come out about hydrogen. Um, they seem to fill our inboxes every day. So there's no doubt that there's a great deal of uh, interest and expectation about hydrogen um, over the course of the next couple of years. In terms of, I won't go over this slide, but it's very well um, um, taken through. Alison's taken us through. But, you know, why is hydrogen on the move? It's because, you know, you know is it, why is it so sexy? I mean, it really is because, obviously, the opportunity... Um, and probably the realisation of the huge engineering challenge that actually faces us uh, with, the, with the concept of 100% decarbonisation. We really don't have the technical solutions at the moment to achieve that. Um, and therefore, hydrogen is one of these areas that we need to explore to try and pursue that if it, uh, we are going to make that feasible. Clearly, the big issue that, um, that Alison talked about was interseasonal uh, storage. And certainly, that's where hydrogen certainly has its uh, significant areas of opportunity. And obviously, this opportunity to, I suppose, export Australian sunshine. Um, it, it's, a, it's, it's an opportunity when you, it's a marketer's dream when you really think about it in terms of uh, the opportunity to, to export um, sunshine overseas. So, um, one of the things that uh, we've talked about, Hodgson, when, when you look at a lot of these, um, these documents that, um, that come across our desk every day, um, there's no, no doubt that a lot of the interest and hype, you, know, you could argue, is being generated by vested interests, uh, people who are trying to promote their, their, their technologies, trying to promote their, uh, their businesses. However, the only way that hydrogen is going to actually become a reality is that in actual fact, if it actually creates value for energy consumers. Uh, and that's what's going to drive the uptake of hydrogen. And so on that basis, um, Gemina has just uh, literally uh, last Monday, actually Friday afternoon, submitted our five-yearly um, regulatory proposal for our price path for the next five years to the, um, the Australian Energy Regulator. Part of that proposal was a very detailed and thorough customer consultation process that we've embarked on over the last year, which, in, which saw us doing customer consultations right across New South Wales in six different centres with various community groups from disadvantaged through ethnic 
groups through to just normal consumers to up to the industrial customers. And what that um, what that um, information that, that that consultation gave us was the absolute clarity about what they what they were expecting. And certainly, energy consumers' number one priority is energy affordability. They sort of said, "Whatever we want you to do, we want you to deliver energy affordability." Um, the other key thing is that they said is that they want access to gas. They they value and prize the use of gas in their homes, and so they want the continuing access to gas over the next short to medium term at least to say that if my if my son or daughter is building a new home, they I want them to have the opportunity to connect to a gas network because of the benefits and and the performance that they get out of their, their appliances. The other thing that they saw was that that they saw that the gas network was almost like an insurance policy. When they talk about being connected to the gas network, they see it in in a sense that they're insuring themselves against the electrification. So they they've got a they've got an arbitrage in some respects, and it was really quite interesting to see how sophisticated they were in that view. And I suppose the one word that sort of came keep, keep, keep coming up with with customers is the optionality word. Is that they wanted to retain optionality about their energy choices. And so, as a gas network, we need to sort of say, well, how do we deliver on those those requirements, and and how does hydrogen help do that? And I suppose in the affordability range, the proposal we've just submitted in the last uh, two days says we're going to be talking about reducing gas prices in terms of the transportation charges uh, in the gas networks over over the next five year period, and have a commitment to try and do that in the longer term. Um, we're also looking at doing about in terms of continuing to make gas available. So the real question is, how do we do that as a business that has an investment horizon of over 50 years in the assets which we put in the ground? And so making sure that we actually have a viable ability to, to connect customers is important to them, and we're prepared to continue to continue uh, connect customers. And the other key issue that, that we've committed to is actually to facilitate the decarbonisation of our network, because again, that was a key issue that customers um, were concerned about, but it wasn't their primary concern. So why a gas network? So why, why would a gas network be interested in hydrogen? And I think in talking about what the customer's needs were, we can actually see how hydrogen can play a role in that. Clearly, um, there's an optionality for lower cost energy systems. I'll talk a bit about it in the next slide, but Deloitte did, a work on, did some work on looking at the total cost of, of, of decarbonising the stationary energy systems uh, with 100% electricity or, or a mix between gas, uh, hydrogen and, and electricity. The other key element is that because customers are saying they want to decarbonise their gas system, it's clearly hydrogen is one of those decarbonised uh, zero carbon gas that, in addition to biomethane, that could be used in the network uh, going forward. I mean, the fact is, Gemini's assets that we're installing today will be continue to be fit for purpose out past 2050. So, as an investor in in infrastructure, we need to actually have some 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 certainty about. How are we going to return re return that, that that investment in the short term, short to medium term? And so, clearly, continuing to, uh, the commitment to connect customers going forward um, in the short to medium term means that we need to have some view on the longevity and the role of gas networks past 2050. Uh, and in doing so, in creating that clarity, will give us as investors the uncertainty to make those investments now in that short term to ensure that natural gas or gas is available for consumers in the short to medium term. So clearly hydrogen can deliver lower energy system costs. It is a source of zero carbon gas. It has the ability to provide interseasonal storage and displacement. That's another key area I think um, is lost is that 
the idea of looking at, especially in, in, the, in the startup phase of hydrogen, is that there is going to be a lot of renewable um, power being generated at times when we actually don't use the power. Storing power and electrons more than a couple of hours is a very expensive and dangerous process. Whereas storing it as a gaseous form in hydrogen, we can actually displace natural gas when there's excess renewable generation and utilise natural gas when there is there, when, when in the middle of summer when, there, when there's a deficiency of renewable electricity gener generation to, to meet the demand of the load at the time. The other key area that we're still seeing the value chain is in actual fact linking both the stationary energy systems and the transportation energy systems. And hydrogen can provide that linkage between the two. As I said, Deloitte um, did a study. So really, in terms of the importance of hydrogen to us, is we can actually see it as that link, but the bi-directional link between the gas and electricity systems. You've got um, electricity to gas via electrolysis, and you've got gas to electricity via um, uh, fuel cells. And you can actually do a physical link between the two systems and arbitrage between the two. The other key element is that gas's physical properties of being a compressible, high-density energy gas means that you've got this inertia in the system that provides a balancing force against the instantaneous need of an electricity system. There is value there to be extracted. I don't know if we really can understand it yet, but there will be value in that value chain to be extracted. The 2017 Deloitte um, uh, study that uh, was prepared for um, Australian Gas Industry Group um, found that in actual fact that if you actually optimised um, the, the in, uh, investment over the course of the next 50 years, between optimising 100% electrification uh, by 2050 or a balance between hydrogen and gas found that in actual fact there'd be 40% cheaper um, using that optimised approach uh, rather than 100% electrification, which is, is to me a cause for, uh, for um, important uh, industry policy uh, consideration. As we said, Hydrogen has a complementary role, and I think that's the key, is that this optionality, complementary nature of hydrogen that actually drives, that goes across many sectors. So you've got the transportation sector, which is, as I said, is a big source of carbon emissions, but also it's a big, uh, um, an important area of um, uh, energy supply. Um, you've got the, the heating and cooking and hot water usage in, in residential and commercial buildings. You've got large industrial grade heat that is necessary. We still haven't got an actual fact of technical solution from an electrical perspective for those. Um, an industry feedstock, we need to continue to make nitrogen, um, um, ammonia, um, and use hydrogen in industrial processes. And so there is an important element there, as well as power generation, whether it be decentralized or large scale power generation, but um, hydrogen certainly complements other low carbon gas options. So you've got these other carbon gas. So, so hydrogen is, is this complementary aspect across the sectors. I'd like now to, to move on to probably what we're really excited about, which is the Western Sydney gas, hydrogen gas trial. So Gemini, with their partners um, in ARENA, uh, are funding uh, a half a megawatt uh, electrolyzer out at uh, Halsey Park, connected to our gas grid. The idea of the, the, the project is to really look at this interplay between the markets. Um, and really we're looking at power to gas um, um, on one, one aspect, we're looking at gas to power, um, and we're looking at zero carbon gas credits. So in other words, what we'll be doing is we'll be blending gas into the network, we'll be storing hydrogen as a buffer, so we'll be actually trialling a high pressure pipeline running at uh, hydrogen uh, and using it as a buffer store. The interesting thing is the, the, the cost associated with storing at the equivalent of 7,000 power walls 
is $100,000 in a gas pipe compared to 7,000 power walls. So that's the equivalent storage and energy storage you get just with, with, with a gaseous pipeline compared to a battery. We're also looking at um, using grid services for, for, for Endeavor. So we are working with partners to really look at the, the, the nuances and, and where that you can leverage value in the value chain. We're going to be operating in different operational modes over the three-year period. We'll be looking at you know, trailing, uh, trailing uh, operating modes with trailing the, the price of electricity, whether we're looking at peaking prices or, or zero pricing for renewables. We'll be following solar arrays in terms of their, their purchasing powers and looking at how that, those different operating modes will work in terms of production um, of hydrogen. The other key element to it is that we're trying to um, promote and uh, develop is in actual fact the linkage into the storage grid. So one of the next uh, ways we want to do it is in actual fact have offtake for hydrogen refueling. We're now currently working with partners in the New South Wales government to develop that and the offtake to actually to, to bring that to fruition by hopefully getting a number of hydrogen buses in Sydney West. Um, and if we can do that, we can then link the, the transportation sector. The reason why we're doing this project in the, and Rena, why Rena was so keen to fund it was in actual fact, it's these different linkages. Most of the other projects around the country are simple injection into the network and that's all. We're really trying to look at how do you actually look at the value chain so that you can do the economic modelling of where you can extract value and how the, the, the road to commercialisation is actually going to occur with hydrogen. And so hopefully uh, at the end of the, uh, the five-year period, we'll actually have data because it's an ARENA project. That data will be made publicly available um, and, that, and, those, and that information about where to optimise and how to optimise hydrogen and the values that can be extracted from these linkages uh, can be truly um, um, adopted and actually look to, to how we commercialise it in, into much bigger scales. Thank you, Grattan Institute, and thanks, uh, Peter and Alison, for your excellent presentations and for the important work that both of you and your organisations are doing in um, doing the stuff that's building our economy and decarbonising and meeting the need for uh, energy users, um, energy needs. Um, now, uh, as Alison does, I'm kind of losing my voice a bit. Um, it could be seen as symbolic that the consumer advocate seems to not have much voice in this, uh, in, this con in this context, but I'll try and remain audible for my full presentation. So a bit about us. Um, I'm with the Public Interest Advocacy Centre. We're a community legal centre which tackles difficult social problems uh, that impact the lives of many Australians. We do that through strategic litigation, but also through policy work. My team at PIAC is the Energy and Water Consumer Advocacy Program. So we promote affordable and sustainable um, and energy and water services for New South Wales uh, households. We've been funded by the New South Wales government since uh, 1998 to do that. Um, and uh, I certainly think that the changes that we've seen over the last 20 years have, have surpassed um, anyone's reasonable expectations of, of uh, the changes that we would have had in energy. Um, last time I spoke at a Grattan event, uh, it was about five years ago, uh, and it was to talk about the changing economics of gas and uh, electricity and what that meant for households and for the gas networks that supply them. Uh, I was working with an organisation called Renew at the time, uh, and we had just undertaken a groundbreaking piece of research called Are We Still Cooking With Gas? And it found that something that is now actually accepted as pretty common knowledge, and that is that due primarily to improvements 
in the cost and performance of electric appliances that do the same stuff gas appliances do, um, gas was no longer the cheap all-rounder for uh, heating and cooking needs that, are, that it once was. Opening up the East Coast uh, gas market hadn't helped much for that equation either. Now, the report also identified um, where gas would continue to be viable in some locations and household types, but for some reason uh, that part of the report gained a bit less attention. Um, but it's kind of fitting now to be here at another event considering the role that hydrogen might play in gas networks. Um, uh, to be a bit provocative, I, I'd expand the point that Peter made, asking if hydrogen is the new black, to ask if that makes hydrogen and gas works the emperor's new black, potentially. Um, let's talk about um, the economics of energy and the cost of alternatives. So it's often uh, ignored, but the single most important element of the financial viability of an energy device or system or fuel source is actually the cost of alternatives to achieve the same end. And on that basis, getting much hydrogen in the gas network seemed pretty unlikely. Now, some of you might say that, hang on, we've got all this potentially cheap, um, you know, zero marginal cost renewable energy causing, giving us a free source of input, input energy to produce hydrogen. Um, but the cost of input electrical energy is only one factor in producing hydrogen. For argument's sake, let's say that problem solved with cheap solar and wind and we've got a surplus of it and, and that's a free source. Nonetheless, the intermittency of those outputs creates a challenge because of the diminishing utilisation of the converters from electricity to hydrogen, meaning that they would only have low capacity factors or require backup with fossil fuel, which would potentially um, limit their, 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 their the uh, renewable advantage that they would have. Two, um, the energy conversion from electricity into hydrogen, after decades of development and a lot of recent hype, is still actually there isn't a really good, cheap, reliable way to do this. Um, and I'm open to be uh, challenged on that. Um, third, and most significantly in the case of gas networks, the cost of transmission, as Alison pointed out, and distribution by pipe and, tra and transport and storage, uh, is not a trivial cost for hydrogen. Fourth, it still has to be converted into end-use energy at the other end. Now, for some practical sources, um, such as for electricity generation, that contains certain issues. Specifically for household use, um, the current burners that we have don't cater to a, a significant amount of hydrogen in them. Um, and separate to this, even outside of replacing household burners, it's quite possible that additional infrastructure will be needed at a, at a household level. Hydrogen sensors to detect whether there are leaks because current smoke alarms don't do so. Modified exhausts because it's wonderful that hydrogen only produces uh, water as an exhaust, but that actually has to go somewhere and avoid um, causing uh, rust and erosion elsewhere. So it's not a cost-free um, not a cost-free transition. Now, most options for those things are cost-prohibitive at best and experimental or unproven uh, at worst. And I'll come back to the fourth point. So even when you're comparing the increasingly scarce resources of natural gas, uh, even in the con Australian context of fracking moratoria and international pricing, hydrogen currently doesn't come close to being able to compete with natural gas. And 
given the extent of some of those barriers, it appears unlikely to. The point there being, it will always, it's likely that adding hydrogen is always going to be something that makes the gas fuel cost more expensive. Again, I'm open to um, other thoughts on that as well. But the question is, if it can't compete, compete with natural gas, then it's an even longer way off competing with electricity to achieve the same end, even decarbonised electricity from renewable sources, arguably, that's been firmed. Um, now, if, of course, hydrogen can be produced cheaply enough to have some portion in our system, um, then uh, bring it on. I wouldn't assume that 100%... Um, I was just picking up on a point that um, uh, Pete made, actually. Comparing that hydrogen transition cost with 100% um, electrification, um, it would be interesting to compare it with, say, 90% electrification, given that uh, that last 10% of electrification is arguably where a lot of the cost is. As noted by the International Energy Agency, the upper limit for hydrogen blending in the grid actually depends on the equipment connected to it. And specifically, it's the component with the lowest tolerance um, that will, uh, lowest tolerance of the overall network. Um, picking up on Alison's point, I've, I've heard figures from different sources, 13% seems to sit about true, 10% um, to even as high as 20% other estimates that I've heard, 10 to 15, 13 seems about reasonable. Um, and the reason for this, of course, is because the energy density of hydrogen um, is actually only about a third that of natural gas. So having a one-third percent, sorry, having a three percent hydrogen blend actually decreases the energy volume in that gas by about two percent. If we are going to increase hydrogen beyond that very low range, about 13%, whatever the sweet spot is, we're actually going to include need to include all of the costs of those upgrades in the equation. When you start looking at those upgrades, even the whole production cost of hydrogen might be secondary to that overall cost on the demand side, including the cost of measures to ameliorate the impact of hydrogen on product quality of some industrial processes, which might actually be something that causes issues well below that 13% um, level. So the, the million dollar question, potentially billion dollar question, is what are these costs to swap out burners for millions of household appliances and potentially have the other equipment required for safety and amenity of use? And we don't actually know, as they're conveniently externalised from all the analysis that we see of the cost of converting gas networks to hydrogen. So I'm very happy to hear Alison point out that this work is actually going to be done now. I actually... Um, uh, asked recently in preparation for today three um, Australia, Australian hydrogen optimists um, about this issue, specifically in relation to networks. Now, the first one said, oh, we just need to plan it well. Planning well doesn't actually in itself overcome unknown and clearly material costs. I mean, you could plan a trip to Mars really well. That doesn't make it any cheaper than an unplanned trip to Europe. Uh, another suggestion was introducing new standards to require appliances to be able to use uh, hydrogen gas. Now, if we started down that path now, it would be well into the 40s before the existing gas appliance fleet is fully swapped out. And it still wouldn't be a costless option because someone's got to pay for those upgraded appliances. Uh, and another pointed out that the transition from town gas to natural gas in most cities, which Tony spoke about before, um, was relatively straightforward. And at the time, I agree it was. 
Um, however, the context was quite different then. Firstly, it was in consumers' economic interests and came with improved performance because of the natural gas um, that it replaced. Secondly, um, the, reply, the appliances were far fewer in type and number and less expensive to swap than now. I'd argue that there probably weren't quite as many ducted uh, gas heating systems, for example. And importantly, the electrical alternatives available at that time really sucked compared to the electrical alternatives that are available today, heat pump hot water that can operate um, for quite low, low heating prices, um, the uh, induction electric cooktops that are quite popular with some people, the high performance um, uh, reverse cycle air conditioners that can be used for electric space heating as well. So I think we need to really ask who's going to develop and make the hundreds of potentially thousands of different models of uh, new burners that require if we make a fast transmission, transition to hydrogen. And more importantly, who's going to pay for the millions of replacements in households that are required? And um, as noted before, the OEA actually notes that the biggest constraint is likely to be not the household sector, but the industrial sector, where many industrial applications that have not been certified or assessed for any, drill, any level of hydrogen blending. Um, I had a friend who worked in the Victorian government in the 90s, and he tells a story of a special file that they used to have for letters to the minister. Um, it was called Novel Untested Technology for Energy and Resources, or Nutter for short. Now, then, um, if a, given how dependent it is on breakthroughs in economics, chemistry, material, and potentially the laws of physics, and the absence of breakthroughs in other fuels, if then you'd sent a letter proposing to turn a system into hydrogen, it probably would have gone straight into the nutter file. Okay. Um, so why do we have such a shared enthusiasm for hydrogen and gas networks today? Uh, it might be partly explained by an observation the International Energy Agency made. And I'll quote, while the level of investment today remains very modest compared to the scale of the energy system and the deployment challenges are significant, the current level of attention has opened a genuine window of opportunity for private, uh, for policy and private sector action. Attention. So there are a lot of lines to read between there, but the IEA's strongest hope for hydrogen gas networks is the current level of attention. How far attention can take us without private, private investors stumping up some of their own money as a show of confidence that those challenges can be overcome uh, is a key question. I had a few more notes, but I've been given the wrap up, so I'll finish there. Thanks. While you're contemplating your questions, um, and I'm sure there's plenty of uh, thought that you might have about some of the issues, I should point out that one of our objectives at Grattan is to try and have a discussion like this where we don't have everybody agreeing with what is being suggested, because that's what makes it interesting. When you've got people who've thought about these things, uh, have come to somewhat different opinions, and I'm sure you've picked up already that uh, or there are areas of difference between the points that have been made already uh, on some of the key questions, particularly around the economics of this. And I guess to some extent that raises the question of who might ultimately pay and what sort of strategy might be the one that goes forward. So I guess what I'd, I just, um, what one question that I'd ask of the panel, each of you, um, in terms of how you've, when you've listened to, you've had your own thoughts, but also listened to the other panellists, um, what do you think the, the, the number one issue might be to take into account these things that, the, that our governments and policymakers might think about? And, and I don't think anyone's suggesting, Alison, that anyone's going to go absolutely hell for leather on this without thinking about some of the issues that have been raised. But, but this, for each of you, 
What would you say is the things that you would want? If you had, you know, an elevator opportunity with the federal minister, what would, the, what would be the number one thing you'd be saying? Look, on hydrogen, you really should be thinking about... Craig. Thanks, Tony. Um, I should throw in a point. One of my closing comments I didn't get onto was I think that hydrogen is actually going to play a really important role in our future. It just won't be in uh, gas networks in particular. The point that I would probably make first and foremost to um, the minister would be uh, innovation is great. It's probably important not to pick winners. There's a lot of uncertainty about hydrogen. That certainly doesn't mean that it's not worth experimenting on and testing because we do need solutions to decarbonise our economy more broadly. And it's obviously got some important opportunities that are no-brainers, particularly in the export industry. It's really important, though, that we don't go lumping costs on consumers for things that are quite uncertain. So great, use some consolidated revenue, um, pay it out of taxpayers' money, encourage private investment. It'll be great to see more of that and some more of the businesses putting their money where their mouth is. Uh, but putting the cost onto consumers isn't fair or acceptable. Alison. So I usually wait for the minister's office to ring me up and request some written advice. However, if I did find myself in the lift, I would probably echo what my written advice would be if they rang me up. And that would be to think about the interplay between a domestic hydrogen industry and an export industry. If you want to have that export opportunity, you need to build enough expertise um, in your domestic sector, in handling it, in having engineers who can sign off on projects and having off-takers who can act as a bit of a hedge against those international markets. And one of the ways to do that would be to think about where are all of the options, including blending small amounts into the gas network. I would absolutely echo the point that you want to do that in such a way that you know you aren't strongly affecting gas prices, particularly for vulnerable consumers and particularly for um, some of the industrial customers who aren't, you know, coping well with exposure to the, um, the East Coast gas price and the international gas price. But it's if you want that export market, you have to deliver, you have to develop a certain level of domestic expertise and this would be one way to do it. Probably actually agree with the the, the, the the previous two speakers because really what we're trying to do is develop a capability in this country um, and an understanding of how hydrogen does interplay. And I think that's part of what we're sort of saying is that the, the keeping open your options as long as possible because we don't really know the extent to which hydrogen will play. There's no doubt there's that fantastic role in that in that build-up phase, that ramp phase for the export market, and so it becomes a, a, just a, a natural offtake. But I think the, the also the, the important thing is to see hydrogen for um, as a substitutable um, gas, not 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 a replacement gas in some in, in some cases. So it's substitutable for, for, for natural gas, where there are peaks in the market when when hydrogen can be produced very cheaply or for, for zero dollars, uh, and can be displacing natural gas for, for when natural gas can be used at high value when there actually is, is a def deficit in power generation. Okay, um, now we're going to ask them some questions. Um, if you have a speech, then. Alison put up the website to which submissions can be made. <laughs> um, so I'd really ask you to try and make sure we give the maximum opportunity for the most number of people to um, ask a question. If you could um, uh, try and confine yourself to a question and um, if you could also ideally identify your affiliation as to what sort of your interest might be. So we might start with the gentleman right in the middle here. And, and wait for the microphone every time, please. Okay, so Craig, you're talking about the... the issues and difficulties with trying to use hydrogen on the domestic front, but 
yet we're talking about this great export market for hydrogen. Surely these issues associated with our domestic market also have to be overcome by countries like Korea and Japan if they want to do what they say they're going to do. So um, can we just piggyback along with them and uh, thanks. It's, it's a good question. I guess that presupposes that they're going to be putting it into their distributed networks to solve the same um, problems, uh, which I, I wouldn't assume is the case. I think it's important that we consider that hydrogen, just because it has some really good opportunities, doesn't mean it's going to be universally applicable. There's a risk that rather than hydrogen being a means to an end, we see it as an end in and of itself. Um, so I wouldn't assume that uh, any um, any other economies would be seeking to um, uh, f firstly they're probably not starting with the same problems that you have but I wouldn't assume that they're using them in those applications. Alison do you want to add to that? Yeah so Japan are definitely not talking about putting it into their gas network at this stage they're talking about using it for transport and for electricity generation in the most part however um, a lot of European countries are talking about putting it into the gas networks because Europe has lots of gas networks and those are quite valuable assets and it's cold and they use a lot of gas for heating. So in the UK, they are talking about it quite seriously. Um, in Netherlands, Amsterdam has announced that it is getting rid of gas heating in the whole Amsterdam area before 2030. So the network is either going to flip, people are either going to flip to having hydrogen or um, biomethane heating um, through the gas network or they're going to electrify. Um, one of the, I think, interesting things here is that when you think about who makes the appliances, I wouldn't mind betting that it doesn't matter whether you're in Korea or Japan or Germany or the Netherlands or South Africa, you're buying appliances that are made in China. Um, so actually what might be worth watching is what is China going to do? And I do remember having a conversation when I was doing my master's with um, an international student from China. We were talking about, you know, well, is the world going to electrify? And he says, China is never going to fully electrify. And I said, why not? And he said, because you can't cook Chinese food on an electric wok. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right. There's a lady just here. Hi, thanks very much for your great and very interesting presentations. Um, I work for a company called ERM Power. We have um, gas-fired generation in Queensland and we also retail and sell gas to wholesale and retail customers in the East Coast. Um, I'm very interested in the idea that um, hydrogen could potentially replace gas in the distribution networks and I'd like to understand the how that would impact the wholesale gas market arrangement. So, you know, currently retailers um, and shippers, traders source natural gas, bring it in uh, into the transmission pipelines, which um, Alison explained won't be a possibility in, in, in our setting. Um, so if gas is going to be injected into the distribution network and potentially replace natural gas, who's actually going to be bringing that gas in and, and selling it? In terms of the market um, forces, I mean, the, the way that it can still happen, I mean, electrolyzer could be installed on the network and still inject hydrogen into the network and, and be treated in the, in the same manner of calorific value that's injected into the network and just blended uh, to the network. So when you're at a blending phase, um, there are the opportunities for private investment uh, on electrolyzers 
to to invest uh, to to inject hydrogen into the network. You know, as does at the moment, we have a number of injection points into the network. So, so that that could occur at 100% hydrogen. There, there, that would probably change completely change the market dynamics. I mean, Leeds is talking about 100% hydrogen. Um, um, uh, conversion, um, where I'm not sure whether they've actually gone through the market dynamics and worked out how that market will work. Um, they're, they're really more focused on the technical capabilities, on how to do it, the costs associated with doing it. Um, um, but in, in, in such a case, I mean, you know, are we going back to the future where you have a vertically integrated utility that provides um, 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 energy to um, energy to consumers? I mean, um, that that might be a model that 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 uh, that gets up um, in in the fullness of time. Um, do you know what happens in the UK or other countries where they have you know a, a great high level of hydrogen in their gas networks? Of the ones that I'm aware of, so Netherlands and the UK, they have vertically integrated companies. So your so Northern Gas, for example, who are doing the Leeds project, um, uh, they are both the gas producer and I think. Or I think they're getting North Sea gas, aren't they? Uh, in in the UK, they've got a renewable yeah. gas target. Yeah. And so 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 there. So is the target is on the retailers, right? That's right. Yeah. So the retailers have to go and find either hydrogen or biomethane from somewhere. I think you could you could probably draw a bit of an analogy with the renewable energy target. That was a retailer obligation. We still made sure, I guess, that the transmission and you know, and we're grappling with the, how does the transmission and distribution network, the infrastructure handle. The, um, the different generators and the, the renewable generators are separately owned entities. So I, I guess it might be something like that. You can see some interesting possibilities where you've got, to, well, I want to put some hydrogen in, but I want to put some natural gas in and things could get confusing. But I think the, one of the clear things that will come out of this is some of these critical policy and governance questions as to how this needs to be done um, to sort of very much to the point you've been raising. Um, next, just the gentleman behind, yes, with the hand up there, thank you. Thank you, Tony. I've got um, two questions, but you can cut one off if you want. Um, they're, they're both technical, probably both directed at Alison. Um, Alison, the first question is um, the electrolyzers, which I think are made by Siemens and, and others, um, are probably one of the more expensive components in the um, supply chain. Um, therefore, a high capacity factor would be attractive, and a lower capacity factor is expected if they're entirely fed by renewables um, and it's probably predictable but I'm going to ask and I, I put this to Alan Finkel as well got shot down I may say um, is it not appropriate to think in terms of nuclear power which which when Australia makes it legal and that's a, a step ahead I'm aware of that but eventually nuclear power which is a baseload by day supplying industry but has surplus capacity at night seems to be a natural fit to uh, solar by day and uh, and less of it by night um, and that would get the capacity factor up. My second question is a very simple one uh, flows from a um, some work I did with CSIRO earlier this year CSIRO and you'd be very well aware CSIRO have produced um, a, a membrane which seems to be one of the most exciting breakthroughs, potential breakthroughs and some have even said it could be the next CSIRO Wi-Fi that said, am I right in thinking that bulk exports might well be through um, ammonia, NH3, and then converted back to hydrogen at the point of use? 
Okay. Um, so the question about electrolyzers and capacity factors and so on, um, just for, for those who, who don't know, an electrolyzer is a device that applies an electric current to water and splits it into its constituent parts, oxygen and hydrogen, and you take the hydrogen off and use it. Um, it doesn't actually matter where the electricity comes from. Um, one of the things we know about the cost of hydrogen produced by that pathway is that 75% of that cost is about the cost of the electricity not the cost of the kit to make it. So the more that you can get the cost of electricity down, the more you will get that pathway cost down. Um, now, the kind of unique thing about nuclear electricity is that it seems to be the only one that's getting more expensive over time. Um, and also that nuclear power stations take a very long time to build. So you know, we could go down that pathway if Australia did decide that it was going to have a nuclear industry, um, but it would take us 40 years to get the first power station built, would be my guess. Um, the other reason electrolyzers are expensive is because at the moment they're not production line manufactured technology. Um, they're not stamped out by robots. If you want to order an electrolyzer from Siemens, you ring them up and say, can I have an electrolyzer? And they send four guys with screwdrivers down to the factory to build it for you. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but what they don't do is go into the warehouse and take an you know, M43 off rack number two and put it on a truck for you. Now, that cost will come down with scale. Because once you start to build lots and lots of them, it becomes a manufacturing problem, which is exactly the same as what happened with solar panels. It becomes something that gets stamped out in a factory and you get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper as you go. Um, the second question was about ammonia. Um, so ammonia is composed of nitrogen and hydrogen. We use it for explosives. We use it for fertilizer. It is definitely a very prospective pathway because it's easier to move ammonia around than it is to move pure hydrogen around. And we're also all, we're, we already have global trade in ammonia. We make ammonia in the Pilbara and we ship it to other countries now. We make it in, um, I think in Queensland as well. Um, so that is definitely a prospective early pathway. Um, the technology that was mentioned um, was one that CSIRO has invented, which is a, a membrane which allows you to strip pure hydrogen off that ammonia um, much at cheaper and lower temperatures and pressures than were otherwise achievable. My understanding is that they're working with Fortescue Metals Group um, to potentially commercialise that technology um, because it does have the potential to be a bit of a game changer. The other interesting thing about that membrane is it can also be used to separate out methane and hydrogen. So if you had blended hydrogen in the gas network and you wanted to pull out the pure hydrogen, you would be able to use the same technology. And that's, I think that's an important issue when you think about fuel cells, because what you really want is pure hydrogen. So the ability to get pure hydrogen out of any other combination is very important, I think. Right at the back, I think. Hi there. Um, Frankie Muscovich from the Property Council. Thanks for your presentations. Uh, I work with large commercial building owners and developers of residential, um, you know, large, large scale sort of uh, greenfield developments. They have really strong mandates for decarbonisation right now and for new residential developments, all electric is cheaper. And when I'm looking at my large commercial building owners, they're retrofitting heat pumps into existing large commercial buildings. Uh, there are some hangovers of state planning requirements that require a connection to gas networks to get planning approval. So my question is to probably to, to sort of uh, agree with all of Craig's comments um, so far, but a question to both you and, and maybe Alison is, what are some of the, I guess, the, the structural 
policy barriers that need to be looked at so that we're comparing, we're not picking winners into the future. So we're not requiring projects to connect to gas networks if that's going to be a costlier uh, option into the future. What are some of those barriers that need to be looked at so that we're taking a, a more neutral approach? Peter, I'm sure you'll have a view on that as well. Um, thanks for the question. It's a really good one. Um, look, there are lots of barriers. I'll just pick out one just as a point of interest. There's a thing called the National Electricity Objective, and it guides that electricity stuff, policy, regulation, needs to be developed in the long-term interest of electricity consumers. There's a national, there's a national gas objective, and it says that uh, gas policy market stuff needs to be developed in the long-term interest of gas consumers. There's no overarching energy objective that suggests that um, the long, all long-term, uh, sorry, all energy policy of all types should be considered in the long-term interest of, um, of, of of energy users. So there's an inherent um, division that might be seen as a barrier to policy enforcing um, fuel agnostic choices for consumers that are just in their best interests at a, at a higher policy level. And I'd say jurisdictional policies, planning and so on, have got a bit of a way to catch up just to reflect the um, what was once common knowledge and a good social um, policy of rolling out gas because it was cheap. Um. I'd, I'd agree with um, with that as well. That the, the fact that we don't recognise that electricity get, uh, consumers and gas consumers are often actually the same person um, when, when we make policy for them. Um, that I think the other interesting thing that that sort of brings up to the surface as well is that we also regulate the transport sector completely separately to the electricity sector and the gas sector. And the thing is that these three sectors are coupling themselves to each other, whether we like it or not. You know, the more that electric vehicles come in, they that hooks the transport sector and the electricity sector together. If hydrogen vehicles come in, that hooks potentially the gas and the electricity and the transport sector together. Um, one of the processes that we're going through is looking at places where there are regulatory barriers it's actually really hard um, and thank you for raising that particular one because I hadn't heard of that one so I'll, I'll write that one down um, and we find them in all sorts of places so we find them in energy market regulation um, we found some in um, legislation around dangerous goods handling for example because the dangerous goods handling legislation is written at the moment as if hydrogen is something that you're using on an industrial site not something that is potentially on in a street corner pump for a car in a residential area um, so there there's lots of different things and it's going to be I think one of the discussions we were having at work today is like is it actually possible to identify them all in the next six months and we went no Probably not. Um, but what we need is a good process for finding them and addressing them and and keeping that pro that moving and then also making sure that with new regulation that we come and we don't have prescriptive things like that because pre prescriptive things en end up being an anchor that you, you're you dragging behind you for 10 or 20 years until you can get rid of it. And thinking about how we can make regulation more about outcomes, so for example, the best interests of the consumer, um, rather than being prescriptive about you have to have a connection. Peter? Certainly, um, gas has been a fuel of choice since its inception more than 180 years ago. So um, New South Wales actually has very few obligations to connect to gas. In actual fact, it hasn't had most other jurisdictions actually require gas to be laid in your states. That New South Wales does not have that. So I'm not sure about 
the 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 op, what you're talking about because there's very few obligations for connecting to gas in New South Wales. People choose to do that because of the benefits it creates. I think the other key thing is that I agree that that you and you're looking for zero. Certainly, consumers are looking for zero carbon outcomes, and so that's part of the whole idea of actually providing the source of zero a source of zero carbon gas into the network such that consumers if they choose to, to want a zero carbon outcome can actually procure zero carbon gas without having to buy external certificates so i think the actual physical production and and the introduction of zero carbon gas into the network actually provides the opportunity for certain consumers to say oh, i want zero carbon i want to be certified as zero carbon um, development uh, and then provide the mechanical benefits and the, the the other benefits that gas provides that consumers choose to choose i mean we are still um, continue to connect 95 percent of new dwellings as they get built in new south wales to, to gas on the basis of consumers actually enjoy and, and value the use of gas i think it's tricky too when you're thinking about making regulation to just often you're, you're fighting the last war so i was in wa recently and i learned over there a bit to my surprise to be honest that gas is a fuel of choice for low-income households because a lot of, in wa it's a lot cheaper to use gas for heating and for cooking than it is for electricity, which is not the case on the East Coast. So when you sort of look nationally and and, and, I mean, and also when you look at how circumstances change over time, you know, one of the reasons it's cheaper in WA is because they've had a domestic gas reservation policy that keeps the price low so they're not exposed to the international price. So there's a lot of sort of choices that come into um, how your, your regulation ends up impacting on people. And I just quickly add, there are things that the network businesses could do as well. So Peter works for a business that's done some uh, smart things in this respect by lowering their fixed costs and shifting more of their um, cost recovery across to volumetric costs. So this has meant that's helped it be an affordable option for consumers to stay on the gas network for at least one or two appliances, even if they shift another appliance across. Yes, sir. Alex Warners from the Australian Energy Market Operator. Firstly, thanks for a really comprehensive overview. Um, my question is for Alison. You mentioned the very ambitious targets that Japan and Korea have outlined. Um, can you maybe outline not only the target, but where do they actually plan to spend money? And what does Australia need to do to actually benefit from this investment? Because that's what I see is probably the most realistic opportunity to really drive down the cost, which is one of the key barriers we've identified. Okay. Um, so where Japan is putting their money um, is partly into building a refueling station network for hydrogen vehicles. So they put quite a, a big investment into that. Um, that is one of the sort of interesting things that even if hydrogen is cost competitive with petrol or cheaper than petrol, if there's nowhere for you to actually go and fill your car up, um, then that isn't actually a choice. So un unpicking that barrier of having refueling points available is one thing they're spending quite a bit of money on. Um, from memory, they're also spending a fair bit of money on developing um, gas turbines that can use high amounts of hydrogen. Um, and also turbines that can use 100% hydrogen. Um, and there's a lot of... It, it's not as sort of simple as just taking an ordinary, a, a straight gas turbine that uses natural gas in now and shoving hydrogen into it because hydrogen burns differently. It, it burns with a hotter flame, with a longer flame. Um, at the very high temperatures, it can produce higher levels of, um, of NOx, of nitrous oxides, which are air pollutants. So you need to figure out how to deal with those and manage those. Um, 
I think they are also putting money into ammonia turbines, so not even bothering with the conversion stage, just just burning the ammonia. Um, they also have a fair amount of money going into R&D, and they're also putting money into um, ships that can move hydrogen over oceans because that's what they're going to need if they're going to take hydrogen from Australia, for example. So um, there's a project people might have heard about in Victoria, which is called the Hydrogen Energy Supply Chain Project to make hydrogen in the Latrobe Valley, take it uh, down to a port somewhere on that bottom corner of Victoria, liquefy it, put it on a ship and move it over to Japan and take it off a ship. So they're investing a lot into that actual supply chain side um, and I mean, in terms of how Australia takes advantage of that, I, I think it's actually a really advantage that 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 they are willing to make that investment because we're going to need that. We can make all the hydrogen we like, but if there's no ship to put it on, um, we can't get it to to markets. So one of the things that I think is important to think about when you're thinking about exports is to think about not just making it, but to think about the whole chain of of make it, move it, store it use it um, because that that end user experience is going to dictate a lot about that chain um, and also if you don't have all of those bits working together the economics aren't going to work out look um it's now just gone seven fifteen, so um i'm gonna have to call that to a close clearly this hydrogen story is one that has got some ways to go before the end um, this is one small chapter at the beginning of the book um, and allison is one of the people who's writing the book so um, what I was, uh, I'd like to suggest is that you come back here later in the year when much more of the book will have been written and we'll explore some of the other issues associated with the hydrogen story in Australia. Um, I've got to convince Alan Finkel to be part of that if I can as well. And I'm sure that will be also an interesting discussion and debate. And some of the issues you've heard today, which have been explored, we'll know a little bit more about in relation to how these things will unfold. And hopefully that will also inform you in terms of the way you go about your life. So again, thank you. Firstly, um, and lastly, can I thank the, the library? We have a very good, strong relationship with the State Library here. They provide this facility and we are certainly pleased to be able to use it. Um, the Grattan team, and particularly led by Andrew, who helped set up the, um, the, 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 the activity tonight, uh, all the stuff on the website, I should point out. This is being recorded. It'll be on our website in the next couple of days. Um, and finally, could I ask you to join me in thanking our three panellists? Thank you. Grattan Institute is uniquely positioned to bring an independent, rigorous and practical lens to big issues in public policy with the capacity to talk honestly to both sides of politics. We maintain this unique position through the generosity of the public and our affiliate companies. If you would like to find out more about contributing to our continued independence, head to our website to donate, grattan.edu.au. This has been a Grattan Institute podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to our podcasts on iTunes.